This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. news. The news is that uh, someone who was at one point considered a top-tier candidate for president, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, has decided to bow out of the presidential race and endorse President Trump. Now, following our second-place finish in Iowa, we've prayed and deliberated on the way forward. If there was anything I could do to produce a favorable outcome, more campaign stops, more interviews, I would do it. But I can't ask our supporters to volunteer their time and donate their resources if we don't have a clear path to victory. Accordingly, I am today suspending my campaign. And in that announcement, and I'm sorry we don't have this portion of the um, of that announcement. In that announcement, he went so far as to say that it's really the you can't allow the Republican Party to go back to the corporatist, globalist leadership that used to run the GOP, which is what Nikki Haley represents. And for that reason, he's backing uh, Donald Trump. If we could grab that, uh, if we grab that audio, I will play it for you. In any event, um, if I'm wondering, Ron DeSantis is a young man. He is term limited, right? He's only 45 years old. And he, he's a young 45. He's in great shape. I have more gray hairs than he does. And he is a lame duck. What do you think Ron DeSantis's future holds? If Trump is elected, I don't know that I see Trump giving him a cabinet appointment or anything like that. I really don't. Because, you know, the big thing with President Trump from what we've seen is loyalty, at least what he perceives as loyalty to him. And from everything that I hear... In Trump world, even though President Trump was very gracious in his remarks in New Hampshire yesterday, he views DeSantis as incredibly disloyal. He views himself, meaning Trump views himself, as the man who made DeSantis his career. He views himself as the guy that helped DeSantis win the Republican primary and then, in a very close race, helped him win the general election to become governor of Florida. So... I don't see him getting anything in a uh, in a Trump administration. Now, let's say Biden or another Democrat or someone else that's not named Trump wins again in 2024. Then a lot of people would put DeSantis at the top of their list for what happens in 2028, as meaning as a Republican challenger for president. I have to tell you, I think this is... Maybe the worst run presidential campaign in history. I I don't know what he's done that would make him a front runner for the nomination ever. 
Now, it's no secret. Sometimes you can have a very poor run one time, and then you do a little bit better the the next time around. But even if you are a DeSantis supporter, looking at it objectively, what are you... I mean, can he really credibly say that he would be the a great candidate in 2028? I don't think so. So if he's not going to if he's not going to be in a Trump administration, certainly not going to be in a Biden administration. If he's not going to be in uh, the, the the front runner for 2028, what does he do? Does he go into the private sector? He's clearly a smart guy. Right. He's clearly well known. He could, I'm sure, do some punditry, maybe be a talking head on cable news and write some books, that kind of a thing. But as far as I don't even think he would do well in something like a radio talk format, because he doesn't seem to handle adversarial questions very well. He seems a little bit stiff. He's got a little bit of a a charisma problem, I think. And I think that's one of the things that hurt him, not only in the campaign with voters, but I think it hurt him with donors. A lot of donors didn't like that he doesn't do the typical glad-handing kind of thing that every other politician does. Now, maybe that's to his credit because uh, I think it's very distasteful the the way a lot of these politicians prostitute themselves to their donors. But he doesn't do that. So what else does DeSantis do? Where do you go from here? Well, he is in Florida. Maybe he goes to Disney World. But in, in all seriousness, whether you like DeSantis, whether you don't like DeSantis, Objectively, what is Ron DeSantis's career path from here? I, I know he's got a law degree. He could certainly practice law. I'm sure he could get a job with a politically connected law firm down in Florida, and that might give him the freedom to pursue his political pursuits as well. Maybe that's probably the most likely option. Is he going to be able to make a lot of money on the speaking circuit? Is he considered a real dynamic speaker? I don't think so. 800-848-9222 if you have other thoughts. 800-848-9222. The only other thing I'll mention with respect to the uh, presidential race is the issue of uh, that Nikki Haley has raised about um, Donald Trump's mental fitness. Uh, so apparently President Trump had seemed to confuse Nikki Haley with Nancy Pelosi. And he said that, um, you know, she should have handled January 6th better. And basically, Nikki Haley, this is all that she needed because this fits into her whole, whole theme. She is all about fresh face. She's younger. Those other guys, Trump and Biden, are old, and uh, once you get to be over a certain age, you should have to take a cognitive test. So she spoke to a rally and really made an issue of this and basically is saying that um, when you're dealing with the pressures of the presidency, you can't have someone else that we question whether they're mentally fit to do it. Now, I don't uh, I do have some concerns about President Biden's cognitive issues. I think if you look at the guy that speaks now in a press conference or wherever, um, he really does press conference. But in an interview, he does not seem the same guy that debated Paul Ryan back in 2012 when he debated Paul Ryan. I don't think there's any doubt that he got the better of Paul Ryan. And Paul Ryan is a smart guy, a policy wonk, love him or hate him. And I'm, I'm not a big fan of Paul Ryan as a political figure, but he's a very intelligent guy. And Biden was quick-witted. 
and he didn't give him an inch. He was on top of anything, of anything and everything. He was Johnny on the spot. But even if you look from three years ago, some of those debates that he did with Bernie Sanders, some he didn't come across well with, and others he came across very well in. I think he's slowed down a lot from three years ago. Now, I think that's natural. I think that's part of what happens when you're in your 80s. I remember, um, but my question for you is, is Nikki Haley, and it's not just Nikki Haley, it's the whole Haley campaign, because a lot of people do have concerns about Biden's cognitive issues, are you going to see that same concern raised with Trump's cognitive issues now that Haley is trying to make this an issue? 800-848-9222. So she told a crowd of voters in Keene, New Hampshire, the concern I have is I'm not saying anything derogatory, but when you're dealing with the pressures of a presidency, we can't have someone else that we question whether they're mentally fit to do it. And all of her surrogates are saying the same thing. Chris Sununu, the governor of New Hampshire, was on uh, Meet the Press yesterday, essentially echoing Haley's concern. Nikki Haley has said this is yet another moment that raises more questions about whether Trump is mentally fit to serve. Do you think Donald Trump is mentally look, fit look, to serve? Look, whether it's Joe Biden or Donald Trump, either the one get off the tele, either one get off the teleprompter. They can't. They can barely make a cogent point. I mean, really. So is Trump I mentally just, fit? You're saying he's not? Not in that moment. He sure as heck wasn't. I mean, look. The point is, you have two nearly eighty-year-olds fighting this thing out. That's not what America wants. That is a great example of this is not the Donald Trump, the disruptor of 2016. This guy has lost his fastball. Um, You know, that's a great example of it. Uh, We always want to go forward in America, right? We always want that next generation. Neither of these guys represent the next generation. I'm curious where you come down on that. Do you think Haley's got a point that as bad as Biden is, Trump may not be the same guy that he was? Four years ago or eight years ago. 800-848-9222. So those are the two things that I'd love your um, commentary on is if you were advising Ron DeSantis and he said, what should I do next? And I've been in this position where someone makes the mistake of thinking I have some wisdom and asks for my career advice and I give it to them. What would you tell them? Do you run for office again? What do you run for? Um, Do you just practice law? Do you do something else? What do you do? 800-848-9222. Because honestly, maybe you disagree. I don't see any way that uh, Trump puts him in the cabinet. I don't. I really don't. Because if the, the most important thing in Trump's view is loyalty. And he views DeSantis, and we could have a discussion about this or not, he views DeSantis as disloyal, along with anybody that supported him. 800-848-9222. Steve is in Monterey. Hello, Steve. Hey, this is Steve Lightfoot. Hey, I want to thank you for the interview two and a half weeks ago, Frank. Listen, Great. I, I enjoyed having you. Thanks, Steve. That was a good interview, by the way. Anyway, um, I want to complete this thought about my suspicions that uh, Nikki Haley is running to lose on purpose to ensure Biden's victory. Now, I, I've seen this game played before where the system has both sides sewn up and they have designated losers to ensure their guy wins. Now, here's what happened. I heard John Dickerson, who's rabid anti-Trump, chide Haley saying this. Isn't there something? Are you, are you going to do something different? Is there some way you can convince America to go with the guy with the more experience? And that was a Freudian slip. It's as if he knows and she knows, both of them, that she's the designated loser. Right. 
Well, uh, we'll see. It's going to be very interesting, Steve. Uh, thank you. We'll be in touch, I'm sure, in the future. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Robert in Philadelphia. What does Ron DeSantis do next, Robert? That is a really good question. Um, I don't think he really should have run to begin with. I was kind of torn on that because I think that the niche that DeSantis fills was already filled by Trump big time. And if but I'm glad he suspended his campaign well, because. You know, and let me let me just let me I'm just sorry. interject. No, it's okay. I'm interrupting you, but uh, let me just interject and then I'll let you make your point on a bridge. Sure. I mm-hmm. think what DeSantis was hoping for, is, and a lot of his supporters and donors were hoping for, is that there was a market for Trumpism without Trump. I think uh, there there was a belief in uh, right of center populist circles that Trump's ideas and messaging were popular on things like the border, on things like taxes, on things like foreign policy, and uh, on things like opening up the economy after COVID. But the thinking was three years ago, coming out of uh, January 6th and uh, all these likely uh, criminal issues and lawsuits, the thinking was that Trump himself was such a toxic personality that nobody would ever support him again. So I think that's what the DeSantis advisors sold him into running as. They said you could be Trumpism without Trump, and clearly he couldn't. I I, I actually think that's a really, really good analysis, man. Um, I was thinking for a while that DeSantis was the difference between Reagan and Trump in a way, okay? But I didn't think it was his time. That's all. And But I'm glad he's still in it in case Trump can't run. Um I don't think he's going to be in the cabinet. He can't be on the ticket because they're from the same state, even though it's not forbidden. It's never done. And it looks like Rubio and Scott are both solid senators in Florida for the right. time being. So provide, unless that changes, I really don't know what he does other than run in 2028. But his term ending now gives him plenty of time right, but, to gear up for that. Uh, right? Right. Well, absolutely. But has he done anything in this campaign that he could then make the case to either the, the public or to donors that said, hey, look, I did such a great, impressive job in my campaign. Bet on me again. I mean, to me, I think he's this election cycle's Scott Walker. I would disagree just a little bit because I really believe that if there was, if, if say, Trump passed away, heaven forbids, a year ago, all his voters would be saying he is, they see him as a younger, more refined Trump. Interesting. Okay, so that's not going to go away, but we'll see. But you have a great insight on it, and I really appreciate kicking it around with you. Robert, thanks for the call. Appreciate that. 800-848-9222. So my two-part question, then we're going to talk COVID, and I'm not going to spend the whole day on this. I know a lot of uh, radio talk show hosts are. You're going to have plenty of opportunity to have your say, but it is big news, and people are interested in it, so I figured I would at least mention it. And I'm just curious what people do think DeSantis should do next. Is there anybody out there that says, yeah, yeah, I want him to run in 2028? Is there? I don't think there is. I don't think DeSantis' wife is saying that. I mean, and I'm not joking when I say that. I mean, given what they've just been through, who is going out there and saying, that's our guy for 2028? Uh, I think it's, uh, I think, yeah, I've heard people say that about Marco Rubio, about Ted Cruz about, um, you know, many other people like Josh Hawley, Rand Paul, um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. I've heard it about a host of Republican so-called up-and-comers. 
I have not heard one person after the collapse of the DeSantis campaign say, yeah, yeah, that's the guy that we should, uh, that's the guy that we should back in 2028. But I'm also interested in what you think about this latest line of attack from Nikki Haley about Trump's mental acuity. Look, in that clip, he did seem, and if we get it, we'll play it for you. He did seem to confuse Nikki Haley and Nancy Pelosi. But there are days when I get confused. And look, not the, uh, uh, Trump, I do, I, I do think Trump's a pretty sharp guy. I haven't, you know, spoken to him in, in several years. But I, do, I don't think Trump is in the same league as uh, Biden. I think the nature of a presidential campaign is you speak so much, you sleep so little, you're running around so much that you're more likely to make those little, I don't know, Freudian slips, if that's what you want to call it. Or, look, maybe Nikki Haley's right. I mean, look, he'll be 78 years old by next year. If not for Joe Biden, that would be the oldest president we've ever had. This comes with aging. Right? You're more likely to make those slip-ups. Curious what you think. 800-848-9222. Chris listening on uh, KMOX in St. Louis. Hey there, Chris. Hello. How you doing? I'm doing well, Chris. You know we're on every day now. Oh, that's cool. I'm glad to hear that. Great. Well, hey, I, just want, I just want to add my little two cents about, uh, about, uh, about Trump, if I can, please. Please. Go be okay. my guest. Well, you know that, uh, that wall that he started on but, uh, down there in Texas? Mm-hmm. You know, it's amazing that uh, that the Democrats could not get around the fact that they had to finish that wall up, even though they were doing everything they could to be able to stop that wall. Well, uh, you know, so put, it came right down to it, they had to finish it. Well, let's. Well, first of all, the wall's not finished yet, but I get what you mean. Biden made the point about continuing the wall after that was their number one issue with uh, disliking Trump. I, I get it from a an issue perspective, but. Chris, I'm wondering if you could speak to either of the two issues that I'm raising. One, what do you think Ron DeSantis should do next career-wise, because he is term-limited? And two, what do you make of Nan- uh, Nikki Haley's attack on uh, President Trump's mental acuity and cognitive issues? Well, I can't, no, I can't help you out with one because I don't know very much on that. But number two, uh, if I was to say anything about Trump's um, personality— uh, I don't mean to be picking on anybody here, especially Donald Trump, because I really do like him. But he's uh, no, he's got the mental top, uh, mentality of uh, Donald Duck. I mean, that guy just simply has a way of making people mad at him, and he does a lot of yelling. Right, but and is if that... you ever watch Donald Duck, he does exactly the same thing. But is that due to age, or has he always done that? I don't know if it's age, or if he's always done that. Mm-hmm. Personally, I think they took a look at Trump. And then they made Donald Duck. <laughs> well, Chris, that's obviously not the case. I get that you're just joking around. But, um, you know, look, I think it's a fair question to ask. If you're going to run for president and you're going to have your finger on the button, I think it's fair. I think it's fair to ask of Biden. I think it's fair to ask of Trump. I think it's fair to ask of everybody. And kind of I, I've never liked that Nikki Haley suggestion of making people take a cognitive test. But. I do think, you know, the rigors of the campaign, the ups and downs of the campaign, you as a voter should determine how these people are acquitting themselves. And in that one moment, Trump didn't look good, in my view. 800-848-9222. David is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hi, David. Yes, good morning. Okay, Frank, this is the issue with Trump. He has a family history of dementia. I'm sure you're aware his father had it. 
Hey, Donald David, Trump David, hang on one second. I'm going to let you make your comment, but I actually we have this clip in case people haven't heard it. I want I want to play it for people and then make your make your comment. This is uh, President Trump uh, over the weekend. By the way, they never report the crowd on January 6th. You know, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley. You know, they did. You know, they destroyed all of the information, all of the evidence, everything deleted and destroyed all of it, all of it because of lots of things like Nikki Haley is in charge of security. We offered her 10,000 people, soldiers, National Guard, whatever they want. They turned it down. So it does sound a little weird. I mean, he said Nikki Haley's name six times. And he, it's not as if he said, oh, Nikki Haley, <laughs> excuse me, I mean, Nancy Pelosi. He, he, it's not, he went with that for whatever it's worth. Go ahead, David. What were you saying? Okay. I've been following this. This is not a one-off. This has happened multiple times where he's mistaken where he is, the names of people, uh, what wars we were involved in, a lot of things, okay? is 77 years old. He's going to be 78. He's only three years younger than President Biden, all right? He's got a terrible diet. He doesn't exercise. And his health records are basically top secret he released a medical report that was like a paragraph long and gave no details whatsoever. There's a lot of unanswered questions. And as you know, we've elected people whose health was questionable in the past, and that did not pay off well for us. Any person who runs for president, I don't care how old they are, should have a detailed medical report, including mental issues, looked at by the American people, because we deserve people in, in top shape. And I'm not saying President Biden is number one in his uh, age range either. I'm open to looking at President Biden's mental acuity as well, because it's important. These people have their hand on the nuclear button, and they need to be as clear-minded as possible. But I don't think Donald Trump is even close. He is clearly in mental decline. There are questions about his physical condition. People say that he walks with a limp now, that there's something wrong with his hand. He has marks on his hand. There are a lot of questions that need to be answered, and I don't believe he's going to make it to the election. Personally, I feel Donald Trump is going to leave this race for health reasons. Really? Sometime between now and November, I believe it. I think he's physically falling apart. I don't know what they're giving him to keep him standing up, but I think by the time of the election, first of all, there will be no debates. I I guarantee you, there will be no presidential debates because Donald Trump isn't mentally able to do them. Well, first of all, right? I think that's the the one thing that maybe Trump and Biden would agree on is that maybe neither one of them want to be seen in these uh, in in these debates. Uh, that's interesting. Hey, um, are you are you're a registered Democrat, right, David? Yes. Yeah. So, what what is your opinion? I'm just curious of Dean Phillips, who seems to have been raising some of the same issues about Biden that Nikki Haley is now raising with Trump. I'm, I'm curious if he resonates with you at all. Okay. No, he doesn't. And I'll tell you uh, one thing about Dean Phillips. First of all, I never heard of him until he entered the presidential race. And the other thing is, he's taking money from the same guy that was bankrolling Clarence Thomas's uh, trips and stuff. Okay who's a, a hardcore Republican. So there's a lot of questions about who's really behind Dean Phillips, just like with RFK Jr. and all these other alleged candidates that have right-wing backing. I don't trust Dean Phillips. I wouldn't vote for him. And he's, got, he's not going anywhere. Look at his poll numbers. 
He's yeah. barely registering. Well, I mean, it's, he's ra- running basically a one-state strategy in New Hampshire, trying to make a splash there. We'll see where that goes. David, thanks for the perspective. And obviously, I hope you're wrong uh, that uh, Trump does make it to the election and Biden, right? Honestly, I don't want anybody um, to uh, have to drop out due to severe health issues. I, I do think I don't understand why President Biden wants to keep doing this. If I were him. I would do a victory lap and say, look, I accomplished this, 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 and this. I'm pardoning my son, Hunter. Uh, I rescued the country from Trump, and I am moving on. One-term president, and he could make the case. uh, I'm not saying I agree with it, but he could make the case that he's the most successful one-term president since James K. Polk, right? Instead, why go through this? I mean, he clearly is not up for it, clearly. And according to the polls, he's losing to Trump in almost every swing state. So Biden apparently tells people that he's running because he believes he's the only Democrat that can beat Trump. But by the looks of things, he might be one of the few Democrats that can lose to Trump. I don't don't know. 800-848-9222. Hey, I'm really excited. We're going to talk to Donald G. McNeil Jr. in just a minute. Let me try and squeeze in one more call here. Al is in Yonkers. Hello, Al. Hey, Frank. Just quickly, uh, you know, I was going to touch on about Ron DeSantis, but I was going to say about President Trump. Uh, with the mix-up with the uh, former speaker and uh, Nikki Haley, I think uh, you could blame it possibly on uh he, you know, he has a lot on his mind lately. Sure, absolutely. Unfortunately, his uh, his wife's mother died, right. and to lose one's mother is a terrible situation. Uh, you know, well, and, and how lady. about the four yeah. criminal indictments, and that he's his yeah. business is is on trial for and potentially yeah. being shut down. Oh, and on top of that, he's facing a multi million dollar judgment in a um, in the civil case against Eugene Carroll. I mean, I'd say if he if he doesn't have a lot on his mind, no one does. And traveling all over the place. Yeah, the travel is wearying. I, I, it takes okay. a toll on me. No. And, you know, that's what I, I think it is, you know. And also with Ron DeSantis, I, I, I know you got a guest coming. I think he can try again in uh, four years, but there'll be a lot of uh, contenders in there like Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, uh, Rubio, you know what I mean? I do, and that's why I don't see him going anywhere in um, in tw- in two thousand in twenty twenty eight. I think it's going to be uh, because he just didn't yes. do anything to distinguish no. himself uh, this time around, at least not in a positive way. Thank you, Al. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. This is the other side of midnight. Donald McNeil joins us straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. song to Hill Street Blues. This is a uh, birthday bumper music request from my step-cousin, Stephen Filaramo. 
who is celebrating his birthday today. Happy birthday, Stephen. Stephen's a big listener to the show. He even came down and uh, hung out with us one uh, one day. A great guy, and uh, wishing you the best, and hope all your birthday wishes come true today, Stephen. Hey, uh, hopefully one of his wishes is to hear from one of the best informed science and health reporters of all time. I have been enjoying the work of Donald G. McNeil Jr. for literally decades. I'm thrilled to have him on the show. He's a veteran journalist who was the science and health reporter for the New York Times, where he covered all sorts of epidemics, including HIV and COVID. His latest book is The Wisdom of Plagues, Lessons from 25 Years of Covering Pandemics. Donald, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thank you for inviting me. And and happy birthday to your cousin. I'm old enough to remember the Hill Street Blues very fondly, too. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. You guys are kindred spirits. Uh, uh, I'll try and get you an invite to his uh, party if he's having one. So um, <laughs> Mine's in two weeks to turn 70. Oh, great. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll let you pick bumper music in two weeks. The um, <laughs> the late Your latest book is The Wisdom of Plagues, Lessons from 25 Years of Covering Pandemics. What inspired you to write this? Uh, what are you hoping people take away from this? I, I would imagine after leaving the Times, there's a portion of you that could have just used a rest and said, all right, let me just catch up on on uh, golf or whatever it is you like to do, maybe some uh, vacations that you've been postponing for a quarter century. You clearly put a lot of work into this book. Why? What are you hoping people get out of this? Um, well, it's it's it's... Parts of it are memoirs, so in some ways I'm telling the story of, of sort of the most adventurous parts of my life, like things like, you know, almost being kidnapped in a guerrilla hunting village in Cameroon and stuff. But most of it is really about just, you know, we've just gone through one of the worst pandemics in 100 years in this country. I mean, more people died in this pandemic than died in anything since 1918. And I, I was trying to say, look, there are patterns to pandemics, and we could have seen this coming, and, and we saw happen again what we'd seen many times before the denialism, the fatalism, the rumors that just sort of cripple our response, the lies, the people who profit from telling lies in the, during the middle of pandemics, and also the sort of uh, polarization that happens sometimes in countries. And, and I, I talk about ha- that having happened. Well, I go back as far as the plague of Athens and the plague of Justinian back at, you know, back in, uh, in some cases in, into uh, the BC era. But I also go into, uh, you know, what happened in 1918, what happened during AIDS, what happened during the very unimportant H1N1 swine flu uh, pandemic of 2009, what happened with SARS and, and lots of other diseases and sort of try to pluck the common threads. And I guess if I've got an audience in my mind, it's mostly I'm thinking about future future heads of the CDC or whatever replaces it. That's another argument I make. You know, people who are now in medical school or in public health school and I'm trying to hope they think about winning, you know, fewer people dying. That's really the biggest thrust of my book is we've got to do this so that fewer people die. I think we could have lost half as many people in this pandemic as we did, but we failed because of bad leadership and, and polarization and all these other factors I talked about. What, and if people just tuning in, we're talking with Donald G. McNeil Jr., author of The Wisdom of Plagues, uh, Lessons from uh, 25 Years of Covering Pandemics. It's out now. Get it wherever books are available. One of the things that you talk about is at the uh, dawn of the pandemic, some top scientists misled you when you were trying to check out rumors that the virus might have escaped from a Chinese lab. Two-part question here, Donald. One, why did these scientists mislead you? And two, 
do you have a belief at this point in terms of whether or not this virus did escape from a lab? I I think this is still one of the big unanswered questions we're going to face, like, you know, did Cuba have anything to do with the killing of Kennedy or was Algeria actually a Soviet spy? That is not going to be answered until an authoritarian state opens its files, China in this case. Mm-hmm. And I don't really expect that to happen in my lifetime. If you if you ask, if you push me to the wall and say, what do you think is more likely? I think given all the evidence I've looked at, I think it is more likely that it was a spillover in the market rather than a, leak, a lab from a leak. Oh, I know this is incredibly polarization, is incredibly polarizing. And I'm one of the people who, you know, back in 2021, wrote an article saying we need to look at the lab leak theory more carefully. It's not the crazy conspiracy theory that it seemed in the beginning because more was going on inside the labs in China than we knew back at the beginning. But the fact that some scientists got together and lied at the beginning of the pandemic to mislead me doesn't change my feelings about that. There was a lot of confusion, you know, back at the beginning of the pandemic. And some of this I had actually forgotten because I don't have access to my New York Times emails anymore that I had raised these questions with a couple of scientists individually back at the very beginning. Is there any way to tell if this virus has been manipulated in a lab? Are there any hallmarks of lab manipulation that get left? Because I didn't know at the time. Um, and I did not know that four of these scientists were actually together on a, on a um, Slack channel and they were comparing notes. Hey, did you get an email from Donald McNeil? Yeah, I did. How are we going to answer him? And, you know, one of the this all leaked out from a Republican controlled subcommittee back in this, this past July. One of the one of the Slack chat things says Don McNeil pretty much nailed it. Let's not tell him. Wow. And and it would be possible to insert 12 base pairs to put in a fur and cleavage site. Yeah, but I didn't tell him that. So why did they decide to do that? I think one they weren't sure and they didn't want to say something they weren't sure about Two, they didn't want to give ammunition to the people who are dead set against any kind of gain of function. Donald, just because I'm, I'm uh, we're still on I'm terrestrial sorry, radio. I'm, it's okay. I'm sorry. I'm quote, I'm quoting. Gotcha. But, but, gotcha. All right. So it, very bad reactions would emerge if, uh, if uh, anybody serious said China had, you know, had leaked this virus out to the world. Those are the three things that kept them from, uh, from uh, t- uh, telling me the truth. You also and the truth, the truth was just their fears. They didn't have any evidence, and they ultimately changed their mind and decided that it was not a lab leak; it was a natural spillover. But at the time, because of this thing called the furin cleavage site, which is a, it's basically part of the spike protein that it, that makes it attached to human cells. Because that existed in the virus, they thought maybe it didn't exist in nature, and it might have been implanted. You also describe um, trying to get your colleagues at the New York Times to believe you that a pandemic was coming. One, how were you so certain? I know you've been at this for a long time and there are certain patterns, but how were you so certain that there was going to be a pandemic of this magnitude that was coming? And why did your New York Times colleagues take so much convincing? Um, Well, for me, it was the numbers that... In the beginning, there were these reports out of China about uh, uh, pneumonias of unknown origin, and then it turned out it was a coronavirus. And we know that coronaviruses can spread quickly between people, but they don't normally, the two that we know about before, SARS and MERS, did not spread easily between people. 
so they didn't go pandemic, but I was following the numbers and it went from 300 cases with no deaths to a thousand something cases with 12 deaths. And then suddenly the numbers came out 10,000 cases, 200 deaths. And I was sitting on the subway just after that had come out that day and thinking, oh my God, you know, a rapid, fast moving virus with a 2% lethality rate is exactly what happened in 1918. Is, is, is that this virus is, is not going to be un, come under control the way SARS and MERS did because there, were, there was slow transmission. This is going to rocket all over the place. And any virus that goes around the world and kills 2% of the people who get it is going to kill millions and millions and millions of people. Now, as it turns out, you know, this isn't 1918, and we have all sorts of things like oxygen and ventilators and, and drugs and a bunch of vaccines. And so the ultimate death toll was more like one-third of 1%. But had this been 1918, this actually would have been a worse virus than the, the hmm. flu of 1918. It would have had a, a death rate of probably 10%. Um, you know, if we'd never invented vaccines and we'd never and we'd never had bottled oxygen, oxygen and, and the other things we've had, this this would have been worse than 1918. So so anyway, I, I mean, so I came into work the next day, going, "This is it. This is the big one." Now there have been times in the past when I thought this might be the big one. When H5N1, the avian flu, was was going around the world pretty quickly in um, in 2005 and six, um, I wrote a I wrote a sort of an interview with a doctor who thought it might be the big one and thought that we ought to prepare for it. We did make vaccines for it. They're not distributed, but they're made. And so, you know, my editors were a little wary of letting me go mm-hmm. out there and say, this is it, the whole world's going to die. And, they, and my editor actually said, look, you've got to talk to a lot of scientists before you can say that in the pages of the New York Times. And I went, okay, I will call, you know, everybody I know who's fought other pandemics and, and talk to them. And I did basically a poll of, of you know, a bunch of the scientists I knew and, and of the dozen I talked to, it was eight said yes, two said no, and two didn't want to commit. Um, and so I had the scorecard. One of the eight was Tony Fauci, who was not, you know, at the time was sort of the world's AIDS hero rather than the controversial person that people have made him now. And mm-hmm. he said, look, I'm going into the White House at this moment. You've called me. I am on a cell phone, um, you know, to find out, to, to, to talk about this. Yeah, I am very worried about this. And so I wrote that story. But that story didn't even make page one. It was on page 12 because, <laughs> uh, you know, th- th- I mean, there was another story about what was going on in China on page sure. one that day. But, yeah, I mean, there was doubt. And, and, and many people just didn't believe me. And, you know, this is... This was um, early, late January. This was February second that I wrote that story, and nobody in New York really began to believe that this was this was going to happen until you know the beginning of March, when we, and, and we we were all told to stay home starting in the middle of March, and there was a lot of skepticism. You know, I mean, the mayor didn't want to cancel the St. Patrick's Day parade. Um, I forget the name of the player for the Utah Jazz who was asked about, do you think the basketball season is going to be canceled? They wiped his hands all over the players, the, the reporters' microphones to say, you know, ha 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 you know, deadly virus. Everybody was not taking it seriously, except for a few crazy coots like me. So you mentioned Dr. Fauci. Obviously, Dr. Fauci was uh, a pretty critical player in the uh, fight against the HIV and AIDS epidemic. You cover that in this book. From your perspective, uh, what were the key differences in how both governments and the media treated the HIV and AIDS situation compared to COVID? Well, remember, at the beginning of AIDS, Ronald Reagan didn't say the word AIDS for five years, uh, four years. I mean, AIDS was noticed in 1981 when it struck in both Los Angeles and uh, New York simultaneously. But Ronald Reagan never mentioned AIDS, never talked about it until 1985 after his friend Rock Hudson uh, 
mm-hmm. um, you know, whom everybody thought was, and his publicist said he was dying of liver cancer. But he, he went to France for treatment, and his publicist there, for some reason, said, no, he's actually here for treatment of AIDS. And that kind of changed the whole perspective of AIDS. Um, you know, somebody like me who'd grown up in San Francisco had seen people walking down the street as walking skeletons dying, uh, but but there was no discussion of it from from the government um, because there was a lot of belief that well whatever this happening is God's revenge on homosexuals and drug users, and uh, and it, it it doesn't concern me and it doesn't concern anybody I know and I don't know anybody who's gay. Um, people would even use the word gay at the time, but uh, you know I don't know anybody who's one of them with their was the people's attitude and they they just believed it was different. So the, the denialism was is an enormous part of any response to a disease. That one was a much more slow moving one. In this case, you know there was denialism in the beginning when when Nancy Messonnier of the CDC tried to say, look, it's a question not a question of if but when this disease comes out of China. The stock market dropped about a thousand points that night. President Trump was very upset and he tried to talk the stock market back up because it was at the time sort of the way he measured his presidency. And he, he, and he was angry. He was on his way back from India and, and Nancy Messonnier was shut up uh, after that. And then he went back and forth in the beginning, you know, first saying that this is nothing. It's just going to wash through it. It's going to disappear by summer. And then as he began to you know talk to his advisors and they began to say, no, no, this is serious and it's going to lead to 2 million dead by October, then he responded by saying, okay, we'll have 15 days to stop the spread. And we had what he thought was going to be just a 15-day pause. But then after it became clear that it was not going to be just 15 days and it would be all over, then he turned against the idea of the very lockdowns that he had started and said, well, we've got to get the country open by by uh, May 30th, by Memorial Day, the um, you know the cure is worse than the disease, and uh, and and you know and then went deeper and deeper into dialogue with, with the fighting against masks and fighting against uh, lockdowns and, and and believing it was all a giant plot to keep him from from being reelected again, and that's where you had the big split in the country. You you had two sides polarizing, basically, you know, on where they were with politics, and you know, Tony well, I mean, is an incredible I, controversial figure, but. It's not like he's in charge of anything. All his agency does is hand out money. Right. He's uh, not the general uh, in, in charge of our response. He was just an advisor to the White House, but he became hated because he was the only person who would contradict the president. Well, just on the in terms of the uh, cleavage in the country over the lockdown response, I can tell you uh, firsthand that a lot of the people that were most upset about the prolonged uh, closing of schools were as left wing and as Trump hating as can be. I can guarantee you that's I that's totally agree. Uh, but, but, but the closing of the schools is a completely different matter from the initial closing. Uh, of the understood. Country, understood. Mind. And you got to come and back. The schools, was a lot of it was union. Uh, but, oh, uh, yeah, that that is for sure. All right. Um, you got to come back because there's a lot of other areas that I wanted to get into that we haven't had a chance. But I want to ask you about one idea that you uh, that you raise in the book as sort of one of your prescriptions for how to handle the next pandemic a bit better. You say that, um, that we should recruit witch doctors into the medical system. <laughs> what are you yes. talking about? Well, okay. So this is not a this is not something that I'm talking about for the United States. I mean, I, 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 there are many chapters about many things going on around the world that I think we ought to do. And but I, I've been a reporter in 60 different countries, and what I see in countries in Africa, and, and in countries in Asia, and and you know, poor countries is where diseases often start. I mean, pandemics don't start in downtown New York City. They don't start in Dallas, Texas. They tend to start in you know small villages in Southeast Asia 
or in the um, you know the jungles of Cameroon and and the Democratic Republic of Congo as as both monkeypox and AIDS did. Um, and they come here. And my argument about witch doctors, um, who it's actually it's a rude term, but I mean traditional healers. Um, my argument is, look, there are many more traditional healers in those parts of the world than there are people with MDs or RNs. And they are often the front line for people who get some sort of medical care. The ones I've interviewed, and, and I've interviewed a lot, and I've you know, spent the night in their huts and things like that, um, have always been smart, respected um, members of their local community, often open-minded, um, and willing to work with doctors, but they often find that doctors are disdainful of them. And my feeling is like, look, these people are the eyes and ears of what ought to be a sentinel system. They know what diseases are common in their communities or which ones are not. We ought to partner with them, Interesting. offer them training, offer them a little bit of a subsidy, and, and partly to say, look, when something you can't handle, when something you've never seen before comes along, would you give us a call? You know, would you, you know, don't just have the patient lie on the floor until they die. Uh, don't have the, you know, or, or pass it on to somebody else as, as happens with Ebola. Uh, you know, have, you know, raise the alarm in some way. Go to the local radio station or make sure the patient comes to the local clinic and say, you know, or, or you know, call some doctor I know. Donald, People, you I, know, every, which doctor I've ever met has a cell phone. <laughs> I'm going to have to end it there. That, that's one of the many fascinating things that come out of the book. Uh, the book's called The Wisdom of Plagues, Lessons from 25 Years of Covering Pandemics. Uh, Donald, thanks again. I really miss reading you in the uh, in the New York Times. Thank you very much. And you can read me on Medium if you like. I hope you enjoyed the book. There you Thank go. Uh, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. That's 800-848-9222. And as Donald mentioned there, he is on Medium. So just type Donald McNeil Medium. It comes right up. Or just go to Medium.com and search Donald McNeil. You could read his column there. All right. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Fast car, Tracy Chapman. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on this program, join our Facebook group. Just go on Facebook and search Morano Radio Fans and Haters, and we post the songs that we play there each and every day. That uh, dedicated to Kristen Buttle, who's celebrating her birthday and uh, is a, an attorney in Pennsylvania and, and very close friend of my second cousin, Andrea. So there you have it. All right, I'm going to get to your calls in a moment. Hey, you know, one thing I do want to mention, I know we have a lot of people that listen to this program who, uh, by the way, if you want to be heard, 800-848-9222, who are into caring for animals, especially cats, because I hear from them. And my wife does that, and outside of our house, she's got this, you know, b basically food and water 
for these outside cats that come to our house to eat. And I'd say maybe there's three, four, maybe even five cats that come to our house every day, twice a day usually, to to eat and hang out a bit. we got a little house for them, and it's a nice little thing. It's a great it drives some of my neighbors crazy. They don't love the cats everywhere, but most of the ones with good humor are pretty cool about it. So, obviously, in our area, it's been very cold for the last week or two. So, when she's been putting out the wet food for the cats, what's been happening? It's been freezing. So... This is very frustrating, not only for her, but for the cats. They're showing up, thinking they're going to get some food. They're already freezing, and they can't eat because the food is frozen. Very frustrating for my wife because a lot of times the food's wasted. So what she did was over the weekend, she looking into this. She spent a lot of time looking into this online, getting these electric warming cat bowls so that you can plug these in outside and it keeps the food warm, or at least warmish, you know, fight and not not get frozen. And initially, my wife was very reluctant to get this because she didn't know how she felt about plugging in these devices outside. And ultimately, she figured, all right, well, we do that with Christmas lights. And she looked at all the reviews. She's very thorough. She's the opposite of me. I just buy whatever the first thing is that comes up online. And she looked at all the reviews and found that um, nobody had a problem with this being a fire hazard or anything like this. So yesterday in our house, we tried these new warmed bowls for the first time. Worked great. The cats loved it. Food did not freeze. So for anybody out there that's taking care of uh, outdoor cats or anything along those lines, maybe consider it. I don't know what brand she picked, but check the reviews. And uh, so far, it's working out well for us and the outside cats that Rachel takes care of. So that's good news. Until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options. In stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money. 